Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Pardalo. Today I'm talking with Sonia Gracie. Sonia is an associate professor at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, where she is also the director of the Hospitality and Tourism Research Institute. She has worked on numerous projects around the world related to sustainable tourism development and has focused her attention on community capacity building in Honduras, in Indonesia, in Canada, in Fiji, and in China. She also has a keen interest in working with Aboriginal communities in developing sustainable forms of tourism. She also has a passion for increasing sustainability in marine environments and has focused much of her research on sustainable tourism development in island states or small island developing states. Sonia and I have worked separately on the same case study on Gili Trivangan in Indonesia about sustainable tourism development, which we talk about near the end of the podcast. So please welcome Sonia Gracie. Okay, um, so I guess, uh, so my background is environmental management and geography. Um, you know, I, I started a program, I was really interested in, in environmental studies when I was in high school. We had a course in Ontario, uh, in Toronto, and um, that we actually don't have anymore, but it, I was really interested in it. But when I started university, um, they had a brand new program and it only accepted 20 students. Um, at the University of Toronto, and it was an environmental studies program. Um, and uh, I thought I was going to go into being a psychiatrist and um, ended up really loving uh, my environmental studies courses. And so um, when I left there, I when I finished my degree, I ended up working for the Ontario Ministry of the Environment um, in waste management and also in voluntary initiatives, so really looking at the polluter pay principle. And I really enjoyed working there, but it was really tough for me to be um, in the public sector because a lot of the work that you do, which was really great at the time and really groundbreaking, um, kind of gets shelved uh, depending on who the minister is at the time and who the political party is at the time. So I found that really tough. And I decided at the, at the time that I was working to continue my, um, my graduate degree uh, doing a master's in geography and environmental studies at the University of Toronto. It was a joint program. Um, and there I, I had some really great professors that focused on corporate social responsibility. So I got really interested between my job at the Ministry of the, of the Environment, where I was looking at kind of beyond regulation. And um, through my master's degree, I, I got really interested in this idea of, you know, what happens to the companies that aren't regulated and really looking at the hotel industry. Mm -hmm. um, and why the hotel industry wasn't, you know, they, they were, they should be considered big polluters. They created, they create waste. They use resources. Um, why, you know, why are the government, why aren't governments looking at this? Why are people not looking at hotels as, you know, just cause they don't have big stacks and, um, at the, in terms of pollution, they were still really detrimental. So I was quite interested, um, in that. And I guess this was, um, around the time of the, you know, real Earth Summit in the early 90s, where people were, you know, academics were starting to look at the hotel industry, and, and the UN was starting to look at the hotel industry and tourism in general. Um, and then um, I um, I continued my career at the at the Ministry of the Environment for about 10 years, um, but at the same time, I decided I wanted to go back and really focus on. Um, sustainable tourism and look at uh, mostly I think at that time it was it was waste management but I was also in love with this idea of working with hotels and developing um, sustainability programs for hotels that at that point was my dream job so my PhD 
was at the University of Waterloo with a professor named Jeff Wald, who is pretty much the godfather of sustainable tourism and the sustainable tourism movement. And um, I, my work was developing a partnership for hotels in the island of Hainan in China, um, and specifically in Sanya, which is now a big tourism destination. But at the time, there was not much happening with tourism. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I got started it, with my love of um, islands as well. So right now I, I kind of see, um, uh, you know, a lot of my work is basically in th three spheres, I would say. One is looking at sustainable development and island destinations with a focus on tourism. The other is looking at indigenous communities um, and community-based tourism, not only with indigenous communities, but community-based tourism. And then the third um, is the greening of the hotel industry or sustainability amongst the hotel industry. So that's kind of how that particularly involved. Um, right now I teach in a business school. Uh, so that sometimes is um, very strange for a social scientist, especially one that has only focused on sustainability. And, you know, I live and breathe sustainability for the last 20 years. So for me, uh, sometimes being in a business school, um, my day-to-day -day becomes a little frustrating <laughs> because a lot of businesses are still really behind. And, you know, I, I get really uh, frustrated when I come across, you know, people who say, or even some of my colleagues, other faculty, students who are really getting excited about things like straw bans in hotels. Because um, I feel like we should be uh, doing more, right? After you've kind of talked the talk for talking about this for 20 years, you start getting a little frustrated. So uh, the question you asked about my day to day, um, my day to day is really focused on, you know, kind of pulling out a lot of projects and, and seeing, you know, I, I feel like as an academic, um, compared to someone who worked in the public sector, I've started an NGO previously, uh, I have a consulting company, you know, but I think as an academic, you have the freedom to really pick what you're interested in. And, and there's so many things that um, we get to work on. So it's so amazing. So I think on a day to day, you know, I work on five, six, seven, eight different projects and talk to several people and um, really just generate ideas. And, and also, you know, as academics, we get to work with uh, young people and we really get to, I think that's where the biggest impact is as academics, is really working with students who then go on, especially in a business school, they go on to be the general managers of these hotels. And they do remember a lot about what we talked about in class and, um, and mm -hmm. about sustainability and ideas and stuff. Mm -hmm. So does that answer your question about? Yeah, definitely. Uh, two interesting things that I was interested in following up on that. One is that you have a sort of interdisciplinary, from the education perspective, you did an environmental studies program in your bachelor and in your master's. Um, do you feel like you have a disciplinary orientation or was the, were those programs a mix of different disciplines, um, which kind of led you to have a more well-rounded sustainability approach? How, how did that impact your, your thinking and where you are yeah, now? No, I I, I definitely think so. That was the, the goal of that particular program at the time, especially in my undergrad. You know, as I said, it was a pilot. It was 20 students um, and it was interdisciplinary. You had someone from business. You had someone from NGOs. You had someone from policy. Um, and in uh, the same, um, you know, in my master's degree um, and even I would say in my doctorate degree, um, because I think you are correct in having an environmental studies sustainability background really is about being interdisciplinary, um, especially if you look at the stakeholder approach and how you're approaching stakeholders. You need to have 
that ability to understand uh, where different perspectives are coming from um, and how you can change those perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And the other part was your mix between academic and more practical non-academic work. Um, what is that? I don't think that's necessarily a typical for, for someone who's an associate professor or professor to have so much time spent outside of academia. How is that? What are what is the push and pull there? What was the downsides of working outside of academic? What are the positives? And then the other way around for academia. Well, I think uh, I think all academics should have um, practical experience because we're not doing our students a very, you know a, a service if we don't understand you know what you're talking about. So I feel like that is really beneficial. Um, in, in my university at Ryerson, we are very focused at being a practical-based university. It suits me very well. Um, I love working in collaboration with companies and um, with associate, you know, tourism associations, with communities. Um, and I do believe that a lot of that stems from uh, my my professional experience. I think uh, I think if you came straight through school and everything you read was out of a book or you heard from other professors, that you wouldn't have that. Um, you wouldn't be able to provide that same level of expertise um, to your students and also through your research projects. Um, but having, you asked about the downside, but I also think the downside sometimes is um, from a publication perspective, you know, a, a lot of the work that I like to do uh, is working with companies and so, um, or it's working with communities. But from a publication perspective, I think sometimes um, you, you know, you don't have those uh, truly academic um, publications. You know, for me, everything is all, always about solving a, a, a real problem more than a theoretical approach. Right. How is that accepted at your at the university, at your department, this balance between the, the kind of academic goals of public of publishing and having more and more academic publications versus the practical work, which is it might not be rewarded or is viewed as the same goal? I mean, do you find that there's a trade-off there? Yeah, and I think um, I think that uh, you have to learn that as an academic how to be able to publish all your work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as a young academic, a lot of my work, you know, we did a lot of stuff where um, I did a lot of stuff where I was working with, um, you know, World Pride. We had World Pride coming to Toronto, and we ended up getting some money, and we did. Um, we helped them green, you know, this, we had like the biggest pride festival in the world come to Toronto uh, a number of years back. But from there, you have to learn how to take that, that really practical experience and publish it. And I think that also as academics, as other academics, you want to read about what has actually happened on the ground. I think some of my favorite work that I've read is about what people have actually done on the ground, is about people's real world projects, right? Is mm -hmm. understanding um, you know, what actually happened in this particular context. And so I think that, that the strength, I mean, in our school, as I said, it's very much encouraged, but um, the strength is uh, to be able to take a lot of your practical work and, um, and publish it that way. And then I think you also need to have a balance from a theoretical perspective and perhaps do both. I mean, it's, it's interesting because when you think about it as an academic, you know, one of the ways to get um, a lot of your work out there is not really through top tier journal publications. It's through book chapters and books, but you're right. It is not something that is looked, you know, highly up uh, favorably upon. Um, but uh, I think in a career, I mean, I'm, I'm only 
you know, 13 years into my professor career, my academic professor career at Ryerson. But there needs I, for me, it's it's been great because I've been able to have a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, I'm the director of the uh, of Ryerson's Hospitality and Tourism Research Institute, and we really are encouraging faculty to go out and try to get you know the government grants that are that may be a, a you know more um, theoretically based, but that your top tier publications can come out of. Um, but I think though that that you always kind of have to have a balance, and you have to do things that really interest you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea that I guess you have one hat which you wear, which is the director of this institute, and you have another which is your 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 more personal academic ambitions. How do you balance the tasks and duties between those two, or what are the two? What are the differences between the tasks and duties between those two hats that you would wear? Um. Well, one is my own personal work and one is, you know, and my own personal growth and my own personal career. And, you know, one is really trying to support the research at the faculty level. Um, And it's been difficult because the other hat that I wear is mother um, and I have two young children. And so, you know, to to have kind of um, uh, an academic career, you know, academics work all hours of the day and we work, you know, all hours of all times of the year. There's no break I think in in a lot of our lives and I think when you talk about creativity uh, and you talk about when your creativity is going to strike for you to write a you know a paper um, like I will go down a rabbit hole for a full week um, and you know or two and and sit there and and crank a paper out Um, and so balancing that with with the research agenda um, for the school itself um, you know, you have students that are employed, you know, you're trying to um, assist faculty in, in what they need, you know, you do a lot, you, you meet a lot with a lot of people. So um, it's something that really does take away from your own personal academic career um, in terms of time. And, and I, I do struggle with that because I think with a lot of academics, we want to just do our work, like we just want to do our research. Um, there's so many things that I, I need to finish or get out or, you know, so many. I, I'm the type of person that I love projects and I love working on the ground, uh, but I struggle with the writing piece of things um, and I struggle with the publication element, but I'm great at partnerships and things like that. And so um, I think, um, I think you know, having something as being a director of a research institute is great also because it excites me and I get to create a lot of partnerships and um, do a lot of really fun things for these projects. But when the ultimate goal is your publications, they they do tend to, you know, you have to pick between the two, really. Um, and that's something that I do struggle with because I need to get a lot of my work published uh, versus just creating a lot of partnerships. But the goal for this research institute really is to have these big projects on the ground, like the ones that I had as, um, you know, as a PhD student. You know, I was part of a, a $5 million um, sustainable tourism project in China. Uh, my master's, you know, they had these, uh, my mentor at my, uh, during my master's, she had also a $5 million project in Vietnam that looked at uh, waste diversification. Like those are the things I think when I think about my personal goals, um, then I see them forging together for both the Research Institute and myself is really trying to obtain one of these uh, you know, big projects that are very multidisciplinary, that have a lot of partners, that, that involve a lot of collaboration, um, that that to me would be the ultimate goal for both, you know, both aspects of my career. 
Do you have any particular time management strategies or strategies which you use to get yourself into a deep work mode or into a an email mode uh, in particular? Do you, do you have anything that you use? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, it's funny because I actually started a little while ago with um, a notebook where, you know, every day I wrote down the things I needed to do, my tasks and my timelines. And that worked for me for a little bit. I started doing Pomodoros where I was, you know, working for 25 minutes, I would set my timer, I would just write, and then I would take a break and then check my email. I think email and social media can really be a big time sucker. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I feel like you need to have strategies to figure out how you're going to focus. Um, and, uh, and so those, that was working for me for a while. Um, we also have uh, one of my colleagues started a writing group every week uh, at our at our uh, department at our faculty where we can go and spend three hours. For me, to be honest, though, um, like I said, I like to work kind of at all hours. And if I'm going to focus on something really significant, like a grant or a paper, I just need to block off, you know, eight hours. I I cannot do. I don't think you're very successful. Um, you know, me personally, I'm not successful if I do an hour here and an hour there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really need to kind of go down that that rabbit hole and be fully immersed. Um, you know, and I think everyone has their place to write, and I think that that um, that's a very important sacred space uh, for me. I like to you know either write in my office with the door closed or write in my living room on the couch, um, and really ded- say I'm going to dedicate a week to this. Um, I think from time management strategies, you really have to have a plan. I think if you kind of just go through your day um, and really be strategic about it, there's always going to be a lot of people who want to meet. There's always going to be a lot of people who, um, you know, have ideas and and really focus on what it is that you're currently working on um, and, and then kind of move on to something else. So I'm a big believer of, um, you know, my to-do lists and crossing them off. Mm-hmm. And revisiting that every day and having a plan at the beginning of the week of what I'm going to achieve. Okay. Yeah. Where does your Twitter use fall on the spectrum between totally a distraction to pretty useful and productive with connecting with other academics? Um, so I, I am not one to use Twitter. I kind of force myself a little bit to go on Twitter and to use it. Um, for me, I, for me, I think the best way to connect with academics is to go to as many conferences as possible. Um, I, I love, uh, I'm very social. So for me, you know, getting into a room with a bunch of people to talk about like-minded interests um, is super exciting. Or for example, you know, um, people like I, I will often reach out um, to people in various parts of the world with like-minded interests and we can have Skype conversations. And even if it nothing came out at that particular moment, um, you know, things, may come out, you know, in a year from then. I think it's really about building your network. For me, I feel uh, that LinkedIn as a social media strategy uh, is much more beneficial mm-hmm. um, from a professional standpoint. I think there's a lot of noise on Twitter. Um, I also get really riled up about things with local politics or, you know, right. with uh, things happening in the world. So I find it really, for me, it would be totally, it's totally distracting if I'm on Twitter and I'm reading about all these horrible things that are happening in the world you know, ice caps melting or climate, you know, people not believing in climate change, then, then, I, then it's totally distracting. And I get, um, very like 
uh, obsessed by, you know, what is happening. And, uh, and so it's best for me not to engage too much in Twitter. But from a professional standpoint, I, I enjoy LinkedIn. Right, right. Well, I want to get into some of the research projects that you have going on at the moment. You said you okay. at any given day, you have five, six, seven projects. Can you give us a couple examples? Yeah. So um, one of the things I'm really, really interested in currently that I'm trying to get off the ground um, and just starting is looking at women in social innovation and really focusing on uh, Indigenous women in particular in, in Canada. Um, so um, that's something that I'm feeling very strongly about. I've been thinking about it for a long time, really looking at women in social innovation and from a tourism standpoint. Um, I love the ideas of you know cooperatives uh, in Jordan and in Morocco and and uh, and seeing how this could be applied um, in a global context, especially with indigenous women. Um, the other, I've been working on a um, best practice scan of indigenous tourism worldwide for several years now. Um, and, uh, and currently I've been focused on Canada. Um, so my current project is actually in British Columbia um, and looking at what makes the best practice. Like I think there's a lot to be said about, um, you know, Indigenous tourism, especially in Canada, is booming. And the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada is doing a really great job um, in marketing our current projects. But for communities or for entrepreneurs that really want to get into this, what is it that makes it successful? Like what elements are needed uh, in order for these, um, you know, these tourism businesses or these tourism operations to uh, be a success because a lot of them are not. Um, a lot of them, you know, may look successful, but they are not really financially successful or uh, they're not authentic or they don't provide community benefits. So I'm really interested in, in you know, what elements, um, how, how can this, how can a model be developed, I guess? Mm -hmm. um, so I've been working on that for several years in various countries. Um, and so now I'm just wrapping up some of my work here in, in Canada. Um, I'm also working with the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, and we are um, looking at developing a toolkit. So um, I have a grant that uh, I'm just submitting on this, but really looking at how can we, again, assist, uh, especially with the focus on sustainability as well, um, and you know what elements do we need to incorporate? So looking at doing the consultation with um, different stakeholders. Um, and uh, another project that I'm working on, which is, I guess, um, also related to some of the work that you're doing, is uh, looking at um, uh, like eco taxes or voluntary funds or eco taxes um, in an island context. So I currently um, am working, I'm wrapping up some of my work on. Um, on looking at uh, stakeholder perceptions of an eco-tax in Fiji. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I hope to revisit some of my work in Indonesia. Um, but uh, I'm really quite interested in sustainability strategies of islands and also how we can raise enough um, funds in order to implement various initiatives. Um, and also revisiting, going back to uh, Gili Teroyan in Indonesia and looking at, you know, uh, like a, a longitudinal study about what has um, actually, you know, happened over the years uh, since 
I have been involved and in, in, in working with them there. And, and you know, um, I'm quite interested about, you know, how has sustainability actually developed um, and what were some of the issues? One thing that I'm really interested in is looking at barriers to development. So, you know, what stops sustainability from developing, whether if, if that's in a business context or whether that's in um, a, uh, you know, community context, a destination context, but what is actually um, stopping them. Um, so I think I'm sure there's a few others kicking around. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of things <laughs> I'm, I'm already. Working, I'm working on something right now as well with um, my uh, my students. Um, I'm looking at taking my students on an experiential learning course. That's another thing that um, I think is um, pretty exciting for me. But we're taking I'm taking a bunch. My students are very international in their focus. Are sorry, very international. They all come from different parts of the world. Uh, we have a very over fifty percent of our students are are not from Canada, um, and uh, we're taking a trip to the Arctic. And I'm really looking at these cross cultural perspectives in education because I think that focusing on education, um, I feel like, you know, when students get this exposure to uh, ways other people live, to understanding you know food security issues, to understanding climate change, you know, taking themselves up to the Arctic to seeing to see. Um, how Inuit communities are living um, is uh, is something that's really important from, again, from looking at our role as, as people in academia. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. We'll have a couple of things I want to follow up on. I definitely want to come back to the eco-tax uh, research that you're doing uh, mm -hmm. and on small islands. But first, the, maybe the first two projects that you mentioned, they seem very practical, a lot of stakeholder engagement uh, you mentioned. What does a project, what do those first two projects look like from on the spectrum between very theoretical to very practical and then also methodologically, you know, what methodologic, what do those projects look like? Um, so are we talking, we're talking about the two indigenous ones, about the best practice and the, right. um, the toolkit. Um, so they are very practical. I, I am working with, um, various trade associations, various, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, various people who are, working within that particular sector um, from base, you know, uh, it's looking at it from um, community-based tourism or corporate social responsibility or uh, social innovation and really kind of uh, from, from that perspective. But theoretically, um, you know, it, it is not, it is more, it is very practical in its approach. Um, I, there are various theories that I could, uh, you know, employ in terms of writing, but writing it up into a, a paper. But uh, for the grant, for the actual grants themselves, uh, it really is looking at a stakeholder uh, approach and uh, looking at a variety of different stakeholders that are um, trying to focus on this problem, which is how can we, you know, alleviate poverty through tourism. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and from a methodolo methodology perspective. Um, a lot of my work, all my work, not a lot of it, all of it, mostly for myself, I'm, I'm a qualitative researcher. Um, so uh, a, a lot of it is qualitative and it is employing Indigenous methodology. So I think when you're working with particular communities, especially Indigenous communities, there's different ways of, of approaching it and different ways of going into the community. And a lot of that might be through talking circles. Um, and so, you know, where you have kind of small groups together, um, it could be, you know, um, a lot of it would be one-on-one -on -one with interviews, and a lot of it is based on relationship building. Um, 
so I think also uh, because I am working with a partner um, and they have a conference where, you know, all the um, Indigenous businesses um, gather on an annual basis, then we would have the opportunity to um, work with Indigenous businesses there and conduct consultation. So I think from a lot of my work from my practical side, uh, especially working with, you know, uh, provincial government in this capacity, um, a lot of my work is consultative. So it is always based on stake. A lot of it is based on stakeholder consultation and really asking, uh, you know, what are the barriers? What do you find the issues are? And trying to um, dig deeper into um, how solutions can be based and to create partnerships. Mm-hmm. Does your work focus at all on deliberation or deliberative valuation aspects? I, I'm not entirely sure what that is. But <laughs> if, can you ex- so give me? Can you explain to me exactly what that is? Um, yeah, only a small portion of my own work is is situated there. But we're going to have a, a new research group is starting in our department on deliberative va- deliberation, valuation, and sustainability, focused on sustainable tourism, and that's going to be run by Marie Fujitani. So she just got a five year grant to to start working on that in our in our department. So I'm pretty excited about it, but. You know what I see it as, you know, stakeholder engagement. All these processes where we're bringing people together, uh, just putting people in the same room is not enough. We have to folk. We also have to think about how people interact with each other in in deliberative way. What are the processes through which they interact, and how can we make that those aspects more effective? Because um, in some cases, it could create more conflict bringing people together. So there's a certain normative aspect of that we that we want people to come together and discuss. Um, and discuss the issues at hand. Um, and we want it to, to come to, to end up being a positive aspect. Um, so what are those different strategies which we can use to facilitate more effective deliberative processes and deliberation process in, in things like co-management, for example? Yes. Okay. So that's why I asked exactly what that particular term was, because yes, my work is very much focused on that. And I think that's why you look at, I look at things as well from, especially with dealing with different communities. Um, but I, I have not used that term, but I'm now going to start using that term. <laughs> I think that's I'm sure great. there's different, there's always different terms from, from different Yes, there's always different camps. terms. Well, that's the thing, right? And that's, that's, and as someone who's very practical in their approach, um, you know, and I have my one foot in the business school and another foot as a social scientist, um, you know, you could dig and find different, uh, there's a lot of the same work that happens in, in very similar ways, um, but different theoretical names to it. So, um, you know, a lot of, I've based a lot of my work on the collaborative approach, uh, and really looking at collaboration theory, Barbara Gray. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, and also looking at stakeholder theory and, um, looking at stakeholder analysis and how stakeholder analysis plays a role. And, um, I just finished a paper on my work in Fiji where, you know, we really looked at a stakeholder perspective, but really what is the benefit of stakeholder analysis? And then you're right. And where does it come to you out of that? Right. Mm-hmm. How are you, you know, there's one thing to get people together, but then how do you create change and how do you create action, um, within people getting together? Uh, in my experience, I've never had, um, in all my work, I've never seen it where people get together and it creates more conflict. Um, um, that has never been any of my experience. It's always been quite uh, positive, just having dialogue and working through through dialogue in, in a variety of different ways. Um, but uh, but I think I think the next step in all of this 
you know, people talking about stakeholder analysis and doing stakeholder analysis is how do you actually get that into creating something afterwards? And mm-hmm. I think as academics, the problem is that as academics, we go in and we do all these studies, but where do we leave people with afterwards? And I think there really needs to be a practical approach to our work because it's not, it's really not ethical to be able to go into people's communities and talk about the, talk to them and uh, solicit ideas and then not give anything back to their to the community or to the business or you know create some form of structure for them so that that um, whatever problem it is that we are analyzing can result in something positive out of that. Yeah, is that something that you prioritize? Uh, to really go back and disseminate the knowledge that you made within the project back to the communities. And one other question would, on that topic would be, do the fund the funders, which are providing the grants, do they also allow money to be allocated for you know, after the work is finished, after the academic work is done, to go back and, and focus on dissemination and do workshops to, to spread the knowledge? Yes. So that's all in my... Um in my grants, the the most recent one I had, which was to conduct a sustainable uh, indigenous tourism symposium, um, I put money actually, and several times there's been money put in for a website to be developed to share the information. But also, it's very important to me um, that yes, that there's you know that a lot of, especially when you have things like symposiums, for example, that it's recorded, that it's that people are able to access it afterwards, that people are able to access it at the time. Um, I'm really quite frustrated as well that that academia hasn't really jumped on the technology train and that, you know, we have all these amazing conferences everywhere or, you know, as an academic, you're asked to speak on your expertise, but we work in sustainability. We should be able to have the technology where I can speak you know, this is why something like a podcast is amazing, but that if I'm, you know, instead of flying around the world, as academics do, uh, to attend, to speak at a conference, um, that we should be able to do it, you know, remotely uh, and still share our knowledge. So I think that there's that for my, in my world, my funders, this is always built into my funding. Um, and it is from in Canada, this is something, knowledge mobilization and how we train highly qualified personnel and how we disseminate information is is extremely uh, valuable and uh, and not only encouraged, it's a requirement. Great. That's awesome to hear. What are the major funders in Canada for your work? Um, for, for me, it's Social Science and Humanities Research Council. They have a variety of different grants. Um, that's pretty much, uh, you know, our, our gold star of funding. Um, there are some smaller ones that come out of the governments, but, but, uh, I think as an academic, you know, that's the one that you need, (laughs) you need to get a shirk in order to have tenure and, um, and, and things like that. But, uh, they are, they are quite competitive. Um, you know, our universities have some smaller ones that can really kind of get us started in terms of seeds. Um, if you're a scientist, we have the, um, there's a science one, we call it NSERC, and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't remember what the particular names are. Um, but we've lost a lot of our international development funding, which is really sad. Uh, because, you know, as someone when I was doing my PhD, a lot of our funding, my funding came from the International Development Research Council, and that's um, no longer. So we don't really have you know, a ton of different abilities to fund. I think uh, for myself, my strategy is to work um, with academics 
worldwide and, you know, connect with different research institutes and try to come up with ways to either to, to jointly get funding through, you know, different, um, you know, different streams, whether it's through their particular countries or my particular country or something at the United Nations level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's get back. I want to go back to the uh, hotel certification and some of your work there. What is kind of this? What is the state of, of green hotel certifications around the world at the moment? It's terrible. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's kind of a, I feel like it's a bit of a losing battle. Um, and it's frustrating because I don't think there has been a successful certification program. Um, why do you think that is? Why? Because I think there's too many. So, you know, when we think about it from a marketing perspective as a consumer, um, well, one, there's, there's various elements, but one, as a consumer, you don't know which one's real and which one's not. So I remember, right, I wrote a book chapter several years ago, and at that point, it was over 100 and oh, probably 120, 130, and that was, as I said, like, that was about seven years ago. So I haven't looked into what it is now, but, you know, the fact that you have over 100 and something different certifications for hotels worldwide is very confusing to the consumer. Um, two, who are these certification bodies? Uh, it's different if it came from you know, a very reputable uh, not-for-profit or if it came from, um, you know, the UN or if it came from s some organization that everyone trusts. Uh, I had high hopes for the global sustainable tourism criteria. I thought that, um, you know, something could have happened on with the GSTC. Uh, but you need to have one credible evaluation system. The second thing with certifications is it's really, well, one, I mean, paperwork-wise, we're talking about an industry that has, you know, the majority of small and medium-sized businesses. It's not like the Accor Hotels where they have a director of sustainability plus a VP of sustainability plus, plus, plus all these different green hotel, uh, green teams working within the hotels that are able to collect information. So when you have a small and medium-sized organization that really needs to think about where the resources are going to be used, certification needs to be something that businesses want to implement because they feel that they are going to gain some rewards for it, whether it's financial or whether it's marketing or whether it's something. Um, but if you have so many to choose from, then really it just waters it down and, and people are not interested in that. Um, you know, I always loved Green Globe. I always thought Green Globe was a really good program when it was just certification. And then they ended up adding in a variety of different assessments. They had A for affiliation, B for benchmarking, and C for certification. Not to mention, it was really expensive. So for a hotel, you know, to pay 15,000 US, for example, um, was pricey at the time for them to, to dedicate that. And what, what are they getting back from it? When the certification programs certification programs that do not have third-party verification, which is very expensive, which is why they have to charge those fees. The ones that are self-certified or self-assessed, they have no merit, right? Because a self-assessed program, anybody can write anything that they want. There's no one coming in to, to, uh, to verify that. So I think for all those reasons, um, you know, it, it just hasn't been successful at all. Uh, I think even, you know, when you saturate the market, it's not going to 
generally be successful. Uh, but I do believe in it, and I do think that you could potentially, it could be beneficial. I just think that there needs to be a number of parameters in place. And I also think with something like ISO 14001, for example, which has been successful, it's really only process oriented. It really doesn't look at the program approach. It doesn't look at, you know, you could have two hotels standing side by side, both ISO 14001, and one could be, you know, reducing their waste by 70% and one can be reducing waste by 5%. But they both follow the process. Uh, you know, they both uh, have continuous improvement and so they both can be certified. So you do need process and program um, as well. Yeah, what is the heterogeneity of the different criteria that are used within a lot of the kind of more popular or mainstream certifications? So heterogeneity amongst... What, yeah, the types of criteria that which can be certified within a hotel, like what are actually the things that, that are being certified in a hotel? Well, I mean, if you're looking at it from um, the, you know, some of them are, are based on, uh, do you have a particular plan in place? Um, you know, in terms of waste management, there are not very many that look at it from, um, you know, a percentage. And I guess also as well, when we think about the tourism industry, they're so completely varied. So to have one international program, um, to have them look at, you know, you can't really necessarily put a number um, that would fit one size fits all. So you can't really say, you know, everyone's going to have to reduce their waste by 50%, for example. Um, but a lot of it is so a lot of it is focused on process. So a lot of it is focused on plans and it's looking at, um, you know, um, you know, waste management, um, water, uh, energy efficiency. Um, a lot of the, you know, now there's some focus on food waste. There's focus on food. There's focus on climate change. Um, but but generally it's the, the same facets when it, you look at it from an environmental perspective. Um but I think also that that has to evolve as well because there is the social component that everyone is looking at. And if you look at what the bigger hotel chains are doing right now, like like the Accor hotel chain, they are looking at people as well as one of their pillars. And certifications need to also look at people as in communities, as in employees, um, as in, you know, um, as in guests, because that element is also just as important as the, you know, reducing waste and water and energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that some of your work is more on the demand side, so more of the perceptions of, of consumers. Um, what do you find there? I mean, what do what is the consumer looking for? For could you is it easy enough to split them into people who generally were are willing to pay more for for hotels which are certified, and then those who aren't, and then of those who are willing to pay more, what are the types of criteria which they tend to focus on? Well, I've actually never done that particular study, but I think that that would be quite interesting. Um, what I looked at was more about uh, eco-taxes and would people pay or voluntary funds. I, I don't know. There's something about a tax. No one likes that word, so mm -hmm. we're not going to call it that anymore. But looking at it from a voluntary fund perspective, and this is something I've looked at for a very long time um, in various um, industries. You know, when I worked at the Ministry of the Environment, I worked with the Canadian Automobile Manufacturing um, Association and Industry, and then we worked with the chemical, um, the Canadian, you know, the chemical producers, and we worked with dry cleaners. And so, um, there really needs to be some onus put on 
tourists put on people. And so I've looked at, um, as a view, uh, you know, this idea of voluntary fund, you know, how much would people want to pay? Um, I think that destinations are, I think now they're coming around. Like if you've seen, you know, in the last year, you got Venice and you, you have the, um, New Zealand's putting in one and, um, you know, the Balearic Islands and Barcelona. And I feel like now everyone's kind of, but we need to do more. We need to put the onus not only on the companies, but we also need to put the onus on people. If people want to travel, cheap travel should not be existent as existent as it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm much more interested in looking at uh, also not necessarily, I've done a particular study on people, but my recent research has really looked at um, all stakeholders, whether it's tourists or government or businesses, um, you know, local community, how people feel towards this idea of what would really be, you know, something that would be focused only on sustainability, right? Like, so it's not a tax, it's something that it's a fund that then you can, you know, implement waste management initiatives. Um, you know, when you, in small, small islands in developing countries, when you look at all your SIDS, they're, they lack the resources to implement things like waste management. Yet tourists are totally oblivious to that fact. And they go into these destinations um, and they don't really know, you know, like where's their sewage going? Where's their waste going? And most times it's going back into the ocean that they're swimming in or, you know, affecting the fish that they want to see. So I'm very interested in seeing how, um, you know, mostly SIDS, how they would uh, a- adopt a voluntary fund, what would they put it towards, um, and what are the different perceptions around it so we could actually get one implemented. Uh, because, you know, I think tourists really, they, they are using the resources, they need to pay for them. Yeah. Is there a particular case example that you could give where you think they've done this fairly successfully? I would love to say yes, <laughs> but, um, but I fear, uh, no, because I fear that, you know, when you look at every case, I mean, when you look at what's happened in the Balearics, for example, you know, they stopped it. They started, they were doing this in 2002. Um, and they, they started up again recently, but they've stopped and mostly because they get a lot of pressure. When you look at the Mayan Riviera, they tried to implement that recently and they got a lot of pressure from the hotel industry and from the tour operators saying people didn't want to pay whatever it was. It was something minimal, like a dollar US. Um, so I, I find it quite, I don't think that there has been a successful, I'm quite interested to see, I think it needs to, there are many things that need to happen and I'm interested to see um, New Zealand as an example because uh, their ta- their you know environmental fee is going to be collected when you come into the country. It's a significant amount. Um, you know, it's it, it's centralized, so it's not just. And you know, you've had similar experiences in some of the SIDS where a lot of it may have been collected kind of on the side, or there wasn't an actual structure in place mm-hmm. um, from a policy perspective. And so, I think that there needs to be. Uh, a you know strong um, 
a strong leader that says, no, this is what's going to happen. And so I'm interested to see what what would happen in New Zealand. Do you think those types of cases are going to be more successful? Those were more like national level top down policies where they're saying, no, we're really going to invest in these types of funds and then find uh, some way of distributing that across the tourism sector or, you know, in the case of smaller islands, these self-organized efforts, um, which are maybe a bit more piecemeal than, as you said, they're kind of trying different approaches and they might not be super efficient. I mean, where do you see the the success in the future coming from? Well, I'm all about bottom-up approaches, and I love bottom-up approaches. And, and if it's mostly because governments are slow, um, and uh, and they change their mind, right? So we had a really, we used to collect um, a fee in Niagara Falls, and it was uh, like a environmental fee with, through the hotels, and it was really successful. And then, you know, they, they got rid of it. They incorporated it into their destination management fund um, fee that they charge. And so people don't really know where it goes anymore. So I don't know if it's necessarily better to have, like I've always been a proponent of bottom-up just because I feel like communities make better decisions, they make them quicker, they can implement things faster, that like you said, it may be piecemeal, but at least you know that this is where the money is going towards. It's collected and it's done, right? They collect something, they fund something, um, and and I feel that they're very successful in that way. But I have seen a lot of this, you know, looking at these funds uh, generally not be successful afterwards, mostly because then perhaps the, then politics always plays a role. So. I'm starting to think, and, and I, so I can't really answer that question because I want to see how it's going to play out. Because mm-hmm. right now, I don't think either side has necessary. Think, I think the bottom-up approach has been very successful in the sense that a lot of things have, you know, were able to get done. Um, but the, there's been political intervention. So I'm curious to see how that plays out in New Zealand because it is a federal uh, initiative and not necessarily, you know, like a local government initiative. Um, so I'm curious to see, I just, I, uh, to be honest, I'm at that point right now in my research where I want to, I, I would, I want to study this further and, and give it some time to see what's going to be successful and why things have actually have not been successful to date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I think about when I, when I think about any type of green certification, even outside the hotel sector, especially someone who thinks a lot about sustainability and, and wishes things are more sustainable is still this kind of inherent criticism towards the if corporate social and environmental responsibility like where it falls on the spectrum between genuine interest in those issues and kind of more nefarious greenwashing and what it, it's, yeah. i think it's hard as as a as a consumer to to see you know where certain certification schemes or individual hotel chains for example would fall there and what is your impression of of that trade-off well i i think too that consumers also I mean, the thing is, is we we don't have that level of caring yet, at generally as a population, um, and uh, and I think businesses, you know, when you look at sustainability, you kind of scratch your head a little bit when you think about it from a corporate social responsibility perspective, because you think to yourself, you know, this really is going to save you money, this saves resources, this saves, you know, this this protects your. I mean, we you're you're part of the tourism industry. If you're gonna ruin what people are coming to see you're just not going to have the longevity um and so but i think this is the inherent issue is that people don't really feel that 
um, you know, they think that there is some time or, you know, they're looking at it from, from a business perspective. They're looking at it from a very short-term time frame and they're looking at it from um, money. And I think with businesses, I think some of them, I mean, yes, some of them are focused on greenwashing. I think they're getting smarter about that. Um, but they are, and I do believe that a lot of people in their companies drink the Kool-Aid and they get really excited. So for example, um, you know, Marriott hotels are banning straws. They think that's the best initiative in the world. Hmm. And as someone who works in sustainability, and I'm sure that, you know, people who go to their hotels also think it's a great initiative, but the knowledge isn't there to know, I think from, you know, people like you and I who have been working in sustainability for a number of years to say, come on, like we need to do way more than that. That is one very small initiative. Great that you're doing it, but this should have been done anyways. Um, you know, I've always been quite interested in looking at kind of the ebbs and flows of sustainability and looking at it from a, from politics and, you know, uh, how people are quite, you know, when people are quite interested in things. Uh, I think it's really interesting that a lot of governments right now are jumping on the banning single-use plastics and everyone's jumping on the banning single-use plastics and there's been a lot in the media uh, about single-use plastics and, you know, you're looking at our oceans and there's whales washing up on shores with stomachs full of plastic. And, and so... I think consumers are becoming more savvy when it comes to that particular thing, but I don't think consumers are pushing it yet. And so until consumers are asking for things, until consumers are basically saying, I am not staying in your hotel. I mean, look at the cruise industry. The cruise industry is horrible, detrimental, um, you know, but, but it's bigger than ever, right? Mm -hmm. So until people are understanding how their actions are playing on a particular destination, then I don't think movement is really going to happen on either side. Or when the government pushes down and says, you have to do this. Yeah. Do you, one question I was interested in is, you know, there's all these different hotel certification schemes out there. Do you get the impression that there's a good understanding within the industry of um, like a triple bottom line approach or the th whatever, if you want to call the three pillars of sustainability, just social, economic, environmental uh, perspective, that that's actually like a well-rounded concept of how people think about certification in the industry or is it more environmental oriented i mean you give the example of the plastic straws and you, you just think you know it, it it gains popularity in the sense it's very proximate it's very tangible it doesn't require sy systemic change um, it's something which can be easily marketed um, and that's a very kind of simple mm -hmm. thing which doesn't really address a lot of the bigger problems and i wonder if there's that 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 sense that you know, it has to be a more comprehensive approach or, or is it mostly focused on environmental issues, more like proximate, marketable environmental issues? Well, I think everything is focused on proximate, marketable. It's always a low-hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I think for myself, as someone who's been talking about this for, you know, over 20, almost 25 years, because my first Green Hotels program was, you know, something I worked on in 1994, uh, for the Toronto was putting in an Olympic bid, the ideas are have not progressed. And I do think that a lot of that is ver varied because there are so many small and medium-sized hotels. One thing I'm quite interested in as well is leadership, right? When I did my PhD in China, when I was looking at, I interviewed every hotel in Sanya. There was about 100 
a little over a hundred hotels, whether it was one star, five to five star, you know, big, small, uh, you know, different ownership styles. I think that is a very useful comparison, but what came out of it, the biggest thing that came out of this research was leadership is the person who is at making the decisions. Do they understand the triple bottom line approach? Do they buy into that and feel that it's of importance? If they do not, then nothing's going to particularly happen, right? Mm -hmm. Think about it even from, I mean, look at it from the perspective of leadership in terms of politics. It's quite along the same lines. If you look at someone like Accor Hotels, they have, I keep mentioning them because I really do like their program. It is really focused on, I feel like it is very comprehensive. You know, it is focused on four pillars. They do focus on people and uh, community and, you know, uh, environmental aspects. Um, it is not just, you know, looking at something as small as straws. Um, they, they've started, again, also movements like, you know, looking at uh, not using anything but or using cage-free eggs, for example, or using, you know, they... Uh, really trying to incorporate local food within their restaurants. Um, for a big hotel chain, that's amazing. I've also come across really great Bakudi and Terra, for example, a resort in Aruba. They do amazing things. They just won um, the uh, res uh, Responsible Tourism for Tomorrow Awards. They are a carbon neutral hotel in an, in an island that, you know, <laughs> is like, it's an amazing thing that, that that it's amazing what they do there. Why? Because the person who owns the hotel is absolutely amazing. This is something that he's really passionate about, and that's why it drives. It, it's going forward. So I feel like a lot of it really comes down to the particular leader. And and again, like if we're going to talk about something like certification or why they feel it's important, the Bakudi and Terra have like every certification under the sun. Um, because they feel that that's important, but as certification bodies, then you—it's it, their job to go out and uh, educate about why this is important and to make a strong brand for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that leadership plays such a strong role in these kind of collective community-based efforts. Uh, I want to get back to uh, the Gilly Islands. That's something both of us have focused on. Um, for those who, who haven't heard of the Gili Islands, it's a chain of three small islands off the coast of Northwest, Northwest Lombok in Indonesia. Um, basically, it's a, it's a, now a pretty world-renowned, I would say, scuba diving destination. It's also kind of a nightlife uh, beach destination as well. Um, what would you like to do there, actually? You said you, wanted to, you thought about doing a long-term study on the Gillies? Well, I also want to see, you know... <laughs> One of the when I worked in the study uh, in the Gillies and and uh, worked with them on developing a sustainability strategy that was 2005, um, and they have done a, quite a bit. But you know, you hear some different things. Like uh, you see a lot of the things that they've done that is really amazing. But then you also hear that I haven't been back for several years. But then you also hear that you know they've developed uh, the entire island. Uh, that they didn't incorporate anything when it comes to, um, you know, their carrying capacity, which was really something that I, you know, was brought up in 2005, um, not building on the beach, you know, not building, like they had that big waste pit in the center of the island, um, you know, ensuring that they were building within their 
you know, their level of sustainability because you can't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on that island. It's tiny. Um, and, uh, and there are a lot of issues back then. And so I'm quite interested to see, like, I know over the years there's been a lot of different political issues that have come into play. Um, there has been, there have been, you know, earthquakes that have uh, changed the dynamic on the island. There's different ownership issues. And for me, that, that, you know, is, is an amazing case study, especially when it comes to, um, you know, small island developing states, because they had the leadership, right? Uh, I think a lot of, you know, this was started, their eco-trust was started by um, some really amazing people. And these people still own, you know, businesses on the island and stuff. Um, but, but what happened over the years to, um, you know, not incorporate all the things that were talked about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So for, for me, it's, fa- it's fascinating. Uh, and then again, you know, how can you, um, how can you work towards that? Right. So, um, because you have an island of, with very limited resources and they focus on the diving industry. Um, and so, you know, I just heard that the turtles came back and again, Stefan, you could probably, you have so much more knowledge about this right now than I do. Um, I just kind of hear things here and there from colleagues and stuff, but you know, uh, they had, I guess the thing is, is they had the leadership, they had the, the, the things in place to make stuff happen. Um, but what happened along the way that kind of skewed the results? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's no doubt. It's a fascinating case there. You know, some of the stuff that I focused on is well, how, how does in a place like Gillies where you have a fairly rural, I mean, Bali is pretty developed um, next door, nearly next door. Uh, but a fairly rural area, which basically has no institutions, no sets of rules and norms for dealing with cooperation within the tourism sector. Um, and then how does, in in the vacuum of institutions and, and increasing growth, I mean, the incredible growth since 2005, since the early 2000s, late 90s on the Gili Islands, um, up until the point now, as you mentioned, the whole island is basically developed. Um, it, it required a pretty strong degree of self-organization amongst the, the tourism sector there. But on the other hand, and then that somehow kept it going and that somehow also kept up this, allowed the growth to continue in the way that it did. Um, but there really are no institutions for cooperation across different stakeholder groups. I mean, the, the diving organ, the diving industry there is pretty self-organized amongst themselves. But I think now once you get the kind of scale problem where you have to cooperate with the regional government, you have to cooperate with other sectors mm. outside of the diving industry, the other hotels which are coming in on the island. Um, and up, up to national government as well. And and that's where I kind of see an interesting evolution of, of seeing what happens on the Gili Islands over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it is. I mean, I think for me, that's why I love working in islands in the sense that they are these, you know, really interesting um, cases where they, they have so many different things at play, especially when it comes to their development. Um, so... I mean, Gillies is just one of the, you know, more fascinating ones. I think because they were so they were early adopters, mm-hmm. uh, right? When they were early adopters when it came to sustainability, it was something that they really were passionate about. But you know, that yeah. that I guess is not enough. Yeah, where where does your interest come from in the small island states? Do you do you see these small islands as little microcosms of of examples because they're limited? in their scale or, you know, what draws you to the small islands as interesting like tourism examples? Well, I mean, first of all, 
um, for me, uh, my passion really is the marine environment. I mean, I, I'm I'm an avid diver myself, um, so I've spent a lot of time in islands. But it really was looking at, especially tourism. You know, most islands tourism makes up. 90, 95% of their GDP. Uh, and again, it's really looking at it from the perspective of, yes, it being these really amazing microcosms that have limited resources, uh, that have limited space, that have, that they're kind of on the periphery, that they don't really, you know, connect with their local governments, or even if they, um, you know, if they do, their the uh, relationship isn't very reciprocal. Um, and yet, you know, you have a lot of, usually a lot of uh, international, um, you know, people are coming in to try to purchase parts of the island, and there's a lot of uh, expat culture. Um, and yes, I think kind of what you just said right now, the fact that they, a lot of them self-organize to me is completely fascinating. Um, and, uh, and people want, you know, they want, they love these places, but they are still hell-bent on ruining them. And so for me, that is fascinating to really dive into, you know, what are the barriers to what it is that you want to do? Um, and what do you want to do, right? So you know that people come, i.e. the gillies, to dive or to um, see turtles. You know, you've marketed yourself as being the turtle capital of the world. People are going to come here, they expect turtles. But then you built a bunch of bars on the beach so turtles can't nest. Um, and then you took, you know, and then they took everything off the beach. So just, just those, the, the decisions, I, again, I'm very interested in stakeholders and collaboration and, and looking at the decisions that people make in order, um, to, you know, to, to have a, a system in place, um, when it comes to tourism. So I think that's where a lot of my particular fascination has come from. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also very, and, and looking at, and the, the differences between warm weather islands and cold weather islands. Um, is fascinating to me, um, you know, small islands versus bigger islands. Like there's just, um, there is no shortage of amazing cases on islands. Right. Yeah, well, before I let you go, um, I had one other question, which is a bit off the topic now, but when I think about, or when you think about rather, your kind of daily work as a, as a professor, as, a, as a wearing the hat of a director, what are kind of the biggest challenges that you face actually in your work on a daily basis? Time, I think. Uh, I think uh, time and money is always is always the one. I, I think there's lots of things that we all would love to do. Um, there's lots of really great work and people with really great ideas. But as academics, you know, we base a lot of our work. We need funding in order to do these things, and um, and how do we get the funding to do that? And a lot of it really is based on um, you know learning how to write funding proposals. And then the second part is how do you recruit really good people to work on these um, particular initiatives? So, you know, we don't have a PhD program yet. We're, we're working on it in, in our faculty of business. Um, but, you know, this is something that as someone who is in, in, you know, my level, we want to have PhD students because we want, we need people to, to work with us. Um, and again, time, right? I think uh, academia is really focused on um, how much you publish, where you publish, uh, what your H factor is or H index, uh, you know, how well you are known. Um, but, uh, you know, if you are really um, prolific in terms of publishing, that takes up a lot of time. And that, and you do have to balance with 
as a professor teaching and you know that teaching um is really great because you get to work with students and you get to teach what you're passionate about but it is something that takes up a lot of time during that particular part of the year so what is um, your what is your ratio at the moment teaching research other things oh well it's technically supposed to be or technical like probably everybody else is 40 40 20 um but what it is yeah i'd say it's probably i think sometimes my service goes a lot higher but it probably is about a 40 40 20 split um you know and you also want to do things you also want to participate in things in your school um and uh and also externally in terms of your service i also think as academics we we have you know no one's gonna we have to review papers uh because that's how the system works um i feel like it's sometimes a really difficult um it is very challenging because uh there is a lot of pressure as an academic to publish and to publish within proper journals um and uh and then again you know I think when you are, I think the best work that you do is probably in your PhD or your postdoc because you have the time to do it. Like, I don't have the, unless I'm on a sabbatical, you know, I can't spend a year in China trying to interview um, 120 people. My research would look different, I guess is my point. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, I think also a lot of the the struggle comes or uh, things are also changing. Um, Being a qualitative researcher, I find that uh, a lot of the tourism journals, um, they really don't understand a lot of, not not necessarily understand, but um, they focus more on uh, quantitative work and um, and so there's only particular journals that really like, really like uh, a lot of the, the qualitative stuff. Um, and so you also have to be able to work then in partnership. So there is a challenge in that because you need to try to find someone who um, can do the, the quantitative work. I'm not one for, I don't, you know, I, I, think, I think I'm a bit old school as an academic. I, I'm not a big um, fan of uh, panels. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot of work that's being published through panel data and PhDs being published through panel data. And, uh, and then that too, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work out there. So when you're trying to publish, it becomes very competitive. Yeah. Um, so that's where a lot of the challenges come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Sonia. This has been really fun. Um, we'll have to definitely stay in touch on Gilly work and some future things there. If we uh, can design something together, that would be awesome. Yes, no, I think we have a lot of uh, synergies in that respect. So great. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Is there somewhere you want to guide people if they're interested in finding your work or getting in touch yeah. with you? Yes. So um, my, uh, I have a, my website is, um, uh, my consulting company is called Accommodating Green. Um, and so my website is accommodatinggreen.com. Um, you could also find me at um, uh, ryerson.ca backslash htm. That's our uh, research institute. Um, and uh, just uh, plain old Google um, in my name and uh, all my papers will come up. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast 
On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. We want to provide content on the podcast that all of you want to hear. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. Again, thank you for supporting the podcast.